Welcome to Arc Next Sessions, episode 32. I'm Paul, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Amelia, Donna, and Ken. We're also excited to be joined this week with longtime Arconnector, Nam Henderson. For those of you that have been on Arconnect for a while, you'll be familiar with Nam from his regular news posts, his very polite and inquisitive comments, and his weekly editor's picks, which have now numbered in the hundreds. Nam, great to have you on the show. Thanks for having me, guys. I'm really excited about it. I love that you describe and when you're introducing Nam that you mentioned his polite comments, because that really is a distinguishing thing that you do, Nam, that you are always very respectful and very much, unfortunately, not like the vast majority of commentators. I, I take that as a subtle dig of me. <laughs> I assume his politeness is due to his 50% Canadian Absolutely. background. Absolutely. I have to say also that I would certainly uh, point to, I think, I know I've heard Donna make a similar comment either, you know, on the site or I think even on the podcast before about the... The fact that I've always, even before you had the new version where you could actually have like a profile linked to your comments, you know, I've always used my name as my screen name. And so I, I you know, I think that the point of using your name and then having to therefore think about the digital trail or uh, whatever that you're leaving, I think has always been a, you know, a, a key point for me, you know, think twice. Mm. Yeah. When you're not anonymous, yeah, you uh, you think a little more carefully, usually, unless, you know, you're drinking or it's late at night or whatever. <laughs> I've certainly had my share of those. Yeah, we all have. <laughs> we all have. So how was everyone's week? I'll start out just by saying that everyone should go see Mad Max, perhaps like multiple times. <laughs> Do not wait for the opportunity to see it on anything less than a, a giant movie theater screen because you'll just be compromising your experience. And I don't need to spend too much time trying to convey it's how amazing it is. I will just say that like, I think that based on this film, they should redo the MPAA ratings. And instead of basing ratings on like how much supposedly bad or like sinful content is included in these films, they should do it based on the actual physical response that you get to a movie because this movie made me so amped. I felt like it was should be outlawed or like only available in like pharmacies or something because it was <laughs> such an effective action film and so fascinating and so fun. So yeah, that's all I have to say. I saw Mad Max this weekend and it totally overwhelmed me. Okay, I'm sold. <laughs> Ken, you've seen it twice already, right? What Did you yes. have the same response? Yeah, well, the first time was interesting um, when I saw it because I saw it in one of those dine-in theaters. So it was really, you know, you're a little distracted. You're, oh. You, yeah, you have your food in front of you. You're trying to figure out what you're eating because it's too dark in there. And, and I'm watching the movie and I'm a little tipsy, so I'm a little <laughs> lit. <laughs> so An action film where like the frame rate is already bonkers. And the idea that you could ever like not look at the screen, the movie demands that you never look away because every three seconds it's changing. Something is happening. Someone's being thrown off of a war rig or being thrown under a truck or being stabbed by a ship. It's crazy. It's just yeah. like it's too much happening all at the once. The best thing about the movie and the reason to go see it is um, for the Doof Warrior. I mean, that alone in the doof wagon. I mean, and I, and I know these because I thought it was the single coolest character I had seen in a Mad Max film, which is the guy with the guitar who's kind of hanging from like these. No um, spoilers, no spoilers. Well, you, it's in the commercials. You can see it anywhere. It's not, it's not a okay, right. There's no plot point here. It's kind of like if somebody said to Cirque du Soleil, create this wagon where you got these guys on the back being on drums and you got this guy hung from like these trapeze kind of straps or something. And he's playing a guitar. And every time he hits this one particular note, he's shooting flames out of the top of it. So it's a combined <laughs> flamethrower guitar. And it is the it is the coolest thing. It's gratuitous in the best way possible. So would you guys, I mean, I heard that in LA that you can see Mad Max in one of these 4D theaters, which I didn't even know existed, but it's like IMAX 3D plus like moving chairs. Would you recommend, I mean, would that just be too much? 
for this movie? I mean, no, do it. Just yeah? like, okay. absolutely. I mean, it's already so ridiculous. Just you do that. And then maybe we can have a conversation about like the pure somatic influence that these movies have. I, I maybe just haven't seen enough action films in theaters, but it's like, it is amazing, especially when the frame rate is used and for kind of creative purposes, they do this cool thing where they have a quicker frame rate where it looks like the person is kind of moving so jerkily or like moving through time in a faster way than normal that they play with for, for certain effects in the film that really, if you were probably paying too close attention, might actually make you nauseous. But it's it's an amazing effect. So, Paul, go do the 4D thing. Yeah, I, I've got my homework for the week. Yeah. And then like the next weekend, go down to one of these immersion tanks you were talking about going to. Yeah, I still haven't booked my, my You haven't spot. gotten your appointment? Yeah, it's like a three-month waiting list. I've been wanting to do one of those. I think it was, I can't even remember. It was like a Simpsons or something. Actually, I think it was on Simpsons more recently, but there was, I, I mean, I've, I've read about them from a long time ago and I've always wanted to do it. It's, it's supposed to be, I, and I remember you all talking about it on a previous podcast, but it, or Paul specifically talking yeah. about it, but it's supposed to be amazing. In terms of uh, the 4D first, you know, I, I wanted to ask is like the fourth dimension time. I mean, obviously that's, you know, kind of a, a jokey thing, but. <laughs> yeah, I'm not into these like 4D, 5D, whatever, but I think what they, what they mean by the fourth dimension is like actual moving and vibrating seats. It's not smell. It's like they put things in the theater. Didn't they have that, those back in like the 50s, though? Yeah. Like they the, did. The, I forget. There was a term, right? Well, there was a horror film called The Tingler. <laughs> that, oh, my God. Yeah. And like certain. Um, porn? No, it was a porn. <laughs> it was, I was going to say, this is a porn movie? <laughs> I mean, you can see that this has huge marketing capacities for the porn industry, obviously. In fact, you could say the entire movie industry is built on whatever is profitable for the porn industry. But in this case, it was just a horror film that had like this creature or like creepy factor that was based on tingling. And so like for fear effect, the chairs were outfitted with, with these like vibrating things. So like whenever something would happen in the film, instead of like, you know, just creepy music playing, there would also be like a vibration at a certain point and you'd uh, freak out and you'd like jump out of your chair. Apparently, I don't know why it kept, it went, laid dormant because it sounds like it would be incredibly effective. Well, they actually have something similar at California Adventure. The, the Bugs Life ride. Yeah, the lonely stepbrother of Disneyland. <laughs> Where, yeah, have you been to that? I mean, yeah. it's, you can, it feels like there's rats running around your feet oh. and then it, it feels like there's bugs crawling up your neck and it's really realistic. It's, it's actually pretty cool. Yeah. Maybe the only thing worth going to California Adventure for. <laughs> what they do in San Andreas, because that's the next one I'm going to see because, you know, I love disaster films. Any, anytime I could see a building get knocked down, I'm there. So San Andreas, what they understand they do is they, they crank up the sound. So the entire theater is shaking. Mm. Uh. Yeah. So the. The bass is like cranked up. You have a tingling. Yes. Yeah. You know, there must be people watching movies like that during an actual earthquake. I wonder if there's like a period <laughs> there must of time statistically, where they just think it has like, this to is happen. amazing. <laughs> or that there are special screenings that happen like on a two second or a two minute lead time warning where they say, okay, well, there's going to be an earthquake. We have to do a screening right here so that we can experience the full San Andreas. Is that like a trigger warning for movies? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> well, the coolest experience I had in the theater was, um, I don't know if anyone's been to the Angelica in New York City, but the Angelica sits above a subway line. And I was actually at a theater so watching a movie. I think it was a, a movie that had uh, lightning and thunder in it. And I felt this rumbling. I'm like, wow, that's intense sound. And sure enough, that's a subway car running underneath at the same moment as this film has this kind of really great scene with the lightning and thunder. So it can work to the creative edge. So what about you, Paul? What did you do this weekend? Well, I did a uh, charity walk for good friend's son who has cystic fibrosis. And that was, it was a very successful walk. That was, felt very good to do that. 
and then uh, did a little diving. Went out to San Miguel Island, which is uh, one of the most difficult islands to get to off the coast of California. And it's uh, it was pretty amazing. That's, I understand, a pretty difficult place to go out diving to. It's like super remote. Yeah. I mean, it's a challenging dive spot. You have to be a pretty experienced diver to dive there. It's uh, extremely cold for California. And um, the sea life there is very wild and larger than what you're used to seeing in other parts of the Channel Islands. And uh, it has like the biggest seal and sea lion rookery, I think, in the entire country. And you see gray whales and lots of great whites around there. I didn't happen to see any, but it was pretty great. So it was a good weekend, good week. Not too much architectural, which is fine. <laughs> get enough of that at work. Ken, what about you? What are you up to? So I spent the weekend getting my office in order. So that's probably why you're hearing a little more tapping. I'm on a surface that I wasn't on before. So now I have a real office in my house and got that straightened up. Excellent. Congratulations. Um, well, that's thanks. a big deal. Woo-hoo. Yes. And I don't know if I talked about it last week, but I, I know I mentioned... Some with my um, my herbivorous butcher clients had some another interesting thing pop up last week that I don't know if I brought up. They were brought to this space. Um, they thought they had more space. They thought they had more of the space than it turns out. So that's been a bit of a challenge. They shrinking the space by about 400 square feet, which really mattered a lot to the usability, um, especially for the commercial kitchen. So that's been a challenge. I think anytime you're dealing with uh, you know, it, this particular uh, building owner really wanted to in there and they were really excited. But um, I think that I think sometimes, you know, we we need to temper the kind of enthusiasm and kind of understand that we're still dealing with business people at the same time. Um, no matter how enthusiastic they are, they're not stupid and um, they're not going to short themselves um, space where they need it, um, no matter what it's sold at, at least in verbally. So um, that's been a bit of a challenge. So we are moving in a direction that um, seemingly has to backtrack a little bit, which then leads my, to my next issue is that still don't have a contract yet. And I'm really, really reluctant. They don't have a final lease. So that's a bit of an issue. They don't have, I don't have a contract. So that's a bit of an issue. So I'm trying to figure out how far do I push ahead with a project where none of those things are firmly set without getting myself in too much of a, you know, putting myself out there and not getting compensated for it, which is, you know, I think the the problem that most architects have when they're dealing with this kind of thing. So that's um, kind of been the weekend thus far. So That's the balance, right? Like you want, you're enthusiastic, you want to do this work. And then at the same time, you, you, you don't want to regret selling yourself short later if you have put a bunch of time into it and you still don't have a contract. I mean, it's always a balance. You just, yeah, it's always a risk. It's always about taking a risk. Yeah. And I'm, I'm, I'm further, you know, I'm getting more comfortable. And I say this knowing that this will go live tomorrow. So I'm comforted by the idea that I am not desperate. I, I, I like these clients a lot. They're, I consider them friends of mine and I would really like to work with them. But the driver here is not them in terms of the finances and the financers. I still haven't gotten uh, at least a verbal approval that my gift back to them, some cost savings on the design fee side has not been approved. And I've grown comfortable with the idea that if it exceeds a certain amount, that either I step away altogether, um, which is not something I want to do, but I think, I think it's certainly something that I should do. I've designed the project once. I, I know I could design it again, but I, I shouldn't be desperate to take on work that I don't need to be desperate for, uh, no matter what the good outcomes could be from that. So that's a bit of a, that's been something that's kind of come to me. The more distance they give me to kind of think about it, the more comfortable I get with this idea that 
I could either do it at all costs, no matter what. If they said, hey, we want you to do it for $6,000, sure, no matter what. I've never, I've never had a project on my own. I've never done anything like this. Whatever you want. I mean, that would be a way that I've seen, I've seen a lot of people go. And I'm just getting more comfortable with not having that sense of desperation around it. So Good. Yeah. <laughs> and if, if it's not that, then I certainly am going to renegotiate. And I'm getting more comfortable in my own skin to be able to say, articulate that in a way that um, I can still provide them the value that they're looking for for a, a reduced fee, a most significantly reduced fee. However, on the back end, either I get uh, assurances, no, not even assurances, written in a contract that I um, they, they roll this out in other locations that I will get a uh, a higher fee because we're do, I'm doing this. I think the fee is something around if it exceeds five percent of the construction costs, not if the FF and E, but just the construction costs. So it's around five percent, a little bit higher than that. So I'm gonna on the future locations jack up the fee to around eight percent, and I'm going to get a guarantee that I get to do those. So if they want me to reduce my fee significantly, where I, I don't feel I can do it unless I get these things in place. So that's my negotiating strategy around that. It could be a bad idea. It could be a good idea. It's my first time doing it. No, it's a solid good idea, I think, in my opinion. Yeah. You, you know, sometimes they suggest that you tell a new client, well, I'll give you, if you like my work on this one, you know, we'll negotiate that you pay me my full fee on this one. And if you like my work and come back to me a second time, then I'll cut you a discount on that one because then we know each other already. But in this case, you know, these guys, you have been working with them for a while. I think, yeah, I think it's a good route to go. And I, I think I have a pretty strong position. So Ken, I hope you haven't told them about this podcast. <laughs> no, not at all. Because you'd be giving uh, away all of your negotiation uh, tactics. Yeah. <laughs> I've been taking jujitsu for two months now. I, I'm almost on to my second stripe, so let's go. <laughs> <laughs> giving you the confidence you need to negotiate right. at work. <laughs> well, Donna, you've come from a place of experience to be able to comment on things like this, of, of having experience working on your own uh, as your own firm for a while as well, right? Yeah. Yeah, but I will say it's that now I'm, I've been three years now employed in an institution. So I've kind of worked, I mean, I've mostly worked in boutique-ish firms and then one medium-sized one and then on my own for eight years, 10 years. And uh, now for the last three years, I've been working in-house at an art museum. So in an institution and, and I am learning every single day things about working inside an institution that I just never would have guessed before. I always had museums as clients back when I was working in a larger firm and um, it's a whole different world on the inside. But I would just encourage people to remember that in our, our discipline, we are constantly learning either with clients or in trying out new facets of our discipline. And uh, this is all a very roundabout way of saying I've had a very rough week at work <laughs> and I'm learning quite a bit about what it means to be in an institution. And, um, you know, I, at 48 years old, I'm still a young enough architect. I can do another job shift at some point if I need to. So it's been kind of a rough week. I will say Hot Dogs Around the World, which was my PTA project last week where I fed 350 hot dogs to hungry families at the school carnival. We sold out of hot dogs. It went great. A uh, word of advice to any PTA parents out there. Don't think to yourself, I'll just slip this bottle of vodka from my freezer into the cooler where the apple slices are to keep them cool <laughs> because you may end up at the school carnival with a full frozen bottle of vodka in your hands. <laughs> oh, I thought you were going to say that. And then the, the bottle broke open and I served nope, alcoholically I no, infused. No, okay. no. That's, that's the Russian hot dog, right? <laughs> they were all in Ziploc bags. They were fine. But the, some very helpful teachers tipped over the coolers to sort of display the apple slices. And there was this big bottle of vodka. It's like, oh, Donna, is that for us to enjoy? <laughs> My school, thankfully, very cool parents, very cool teachers. It wasn't a problem. But uh, yeah, just be mindful of that, that 
Vodka in the freezer should stay in the freezer. So what was the most popular hot dog? The Chicago dog. Mm. So we had Chicago, Japan, and Cuba. And I, you know, one of the things with our carnival at school is there is no, there are no alcoholic beverages except for the vodka that I inadvertently brought. So a lot of the dads go for the Chicago dog, I think because they can't get a beer. Like, you know, it's the kind of setting you really want to have a beer. And I, I think the Chicago dog is just the closest they can get to it. So, yeah. To a beer? Yeah, it's like a manly thing to eat. Okay, even even another reason why not to eat a Chicago dog. It, it, compare it to a beer. I mean, what is that? <laughs> it's the most manly kind of non-dad thing that these poor men can imagine while they're at this, you know, school carnival. Doesn't say anything about the most manly thing is a man ra- wrapping his hand around a hot dog, does it? No, 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 not at all. No, no, but I'll tell you, I handled 350 hot dogs. <laughs> It was a lot. Well, we were just glad you did that because it gave us the title for last week's episode, which is, I think, one of my most favorite titles. It just, it doesn't really even tell you anything about what what the actual main topics of the show are. It's just a fantastic idea. Hot dogs around the world. Hot dogs around the world. It just makes everyone smile. So So that's been my week. No, tell us what you've been up to. Yeah, this week and... In life in general, we got to get to know you a little better. What do you do on a day-to-day basis outside of Who are uh, you? <laughs> outside of gracing us with your presence on Arcanine? Sounds existential of some sort. Um, well, so, you know, I, I've had a sort of interesting career path, but I've spent the last many years now, I guess going on six, seven years, working in healthcare informatics. So uh, to kind of boil that down, I basically work with, you know, IT in a healthcare setting, specifically sort of a... Uh, I think I've described it to Paul as a mixture of kind of training, user interface, kind of user interaction, and, um, you know, kind of quality, you know, I work on quality projects and a variety of things like that. So not super, you know, very different than anything I, I'm involved with with Arconnect. Honestly, I think uh, probably one of the main reasons I've gotten so, you know, involved with Arconnect, at least, you know, a, a, you know, kind of on my own, you know, terms over the years. Um and uh, so, you know, I also I'm involved on a lot of uh, local advisory boards. You know, I try to once I realized I was going to be here for a while, I tried to really dig in and get involved, you know, kind of civic stuff locally. So I've been on a bunch of different advisory boards for the, you know, either different county city departments or the local uh, community redevelopment agency, uh, things like that. So that's kind of, you know, big picture what I've been up to over the last few years, other than, uh, you know, I I guess I should mention, you know, getting married and, (laughs) you know, that whole start to the next phase of my life. That just happened recently. Yeah, yeah. Congratulations. Just like literally in the last, you know, I guess month, six, four, six weeks, something like that. So yeah, very fresh and, you know, um, just, I think, beginning to, you know, kind of dig into that and really kind of enjoy that and looking forward to kind of, you know, all the learning and growth that that's going to provide me over the years, I'm sure. I have a question for you. So you're very democratic in the way that you cover information in the editor's picks and you, you, you seem to have a genuine interest in a lot of different areas of architecture and, and the urban design and, you know, civic issues. And what are your biggest interests within the world of architecture? You know, like what, what is it that really kind of gets you excited? Yeah. So, I mean, I think one thing, you know, cause there was a, at least early on when I got involved, it really, I mean, it started because, you know, I went to school with, um, for 
you know, longtime art connectors. I went to school with AP and um, Killian Riano and really, uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, they they all went to. UF I had no and, idea. Yeah, I mean, wow. so that's how I got even. Oh, that's how I was made aware of Art Connect. How I got you know involved, kind of as a you know a lurker, and then eventually a you know poster. And so, I mean, we weren't actually in the same. I mean, because they were in a different college. They were in you know the design college, but um, and my background is you know all liberal arts degrees, uh, both my bachelor's and my my master's. But uh, so that's that's you know that's kind of how I got involved and interested. Uh, just and then my roommate, who was never an Art Connector, but he was also in you know the design college. He's now an architect working out west and so i've always just you know had a lot of friends that were in the design professions uh, at least since college and just you know got very interested in it from that perspective i mean one thing i did because i kind of tossed around the idea for a while of and I'm, I'm still s- sort of tossing around the idea of going back to school at some point to kind of explore these interests more professionally but i think one thing i realized early on is i don't i don't want to say i'm not interested but my interests or my particular skill set, I think, doesn't lend me to want to be like an actual architect or landscape architect or like the actual designer. What I'm much more interested in are sort of like the the sort of planning policy kind of civic kind of community development side of it, you know, in terms of like the big picture of what I'm interested in, I, you know, and that I guess may even be more like discipline specific than anything else. In terms of, you know, more kind of specific design topics, you know, I guess, you know, it's, I guess maybe a little less trendy now, but obviously, you know, still kind of a big issue out there. Things about, you know, I guess, you know, issues of urbanization, sustainability, you know, resource efficiency. There's actually a center at UF, which, you know, I, I can maybe talk about for a second, uh, but, the, the, you know, all, it's it's a center on, you know, resource efficient communities. And um, so those kinds of issues are kind of, I guess, what, you know, I would say my specific interests are, you know, different kinds of, you know, net zero or those sorts of types of design issues. How does that relate specifically to being in Florida? I mean, Florida is at the the sort of the one of the really hotbeds of climate change issues as well as flood management issues and hurricane and you know, uh, rapid response all of that. Do you feel like that's um, partly why you've been interested in this? I mean, honestly, no. I mean, I think that you're obviously right. There's a lot of issues there that have to do with, um, you know, our state in particular. Obviously, Miami is, you know, it's been in the news a lot lately and some of the, you know, already feeling impacts of issues related to, uh, you know, at least sea level rise, whether or not, you know, you want to attribute that to climate change or not. So yes, certainly, I think more locally, you know, I think the big issue locally and is obviously, or maybe not so obviously, but the big issue locally has really been and it's been getting a lot of traction in the recent years, but uh, water, both quality and quantity. Uh, so, you know, yeah, uh, I mean, I think, you know, obviously some things having to do with uh, architecture is certainly at least in terms of landscaping or, you know, a water star, those kinds of, you know, uh, issues. Well, in that list, Nam, you didn't mention specifically the topic why we wanted to have you on the show today. Something you post about rel- with relative frequency and have kind of taken up the unofficial mantle of the beat on dead malls, a topic that we've seen like you bring to the site quite often and are quite engaged with of trying to understand a what a dead mall is, what qualifies as a dead mall. How do you pronounce a, a mall dead? Is there such a thing as a legally dead mall? <laughs> and uh, and how that plays into all these other issues you were talking about of like overall urban climate development, real estate, overall urbanization, and especially in this American context of how the mall has such a pivotal role in different American cities, often for different playing different roles, but but equally pivotal ones, depending on the overall economic context of the area. So can I ask you just to define a dead mall in your own words just to start out? 
Sure. Yeah. And that's a huge oversight on my part. I'm not sure how I forgot that. Um, <laughs> no, it allowed us to make the perfect transition into the topic of the show. So um, you did that on purpose. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, yeah. So I think, you know, I would say two things in terms of a definition. I think, you know, a dead mall is basically, you know, a, a mall. There, There's less trap foot traffic. Stores are disappearing. And, uh, you know, uh, just basically a lot of malls are, in fact, closing. Um, so, uh, you know, I think if there is a legally dead mall, it would be a mall that is no longer, you know, seeing consumers. I think in terms of like sort of maybe tying that back into the discussion we were having a moment ago, I think, you know, the interest there is directly a result of, you know, interest in sort of the idea of the suburbs and sort of post-war American development and how there's been this transition in recent years in a lot of communities from, you know, sort of Virginia and the D.C. suburbs to places like uh, Denver and basically a move towards basically these, you know, kind of densifying those first generation suburbs and making them more urban. And one of the big things that people are having to, you know, address in that process is how do we turn these malls into sort of how do we remake them and, and, you know, kind of make them a, a better match for the type of development that uh, consumers are wanting to see uh, moving forward in the you know contemporary society. And it also just creates this kind of, I wouldn't say entirely unique, but somewhat unique property of having this giant structure on the landscape, often built to just the worst accommodation of, of car traffic and parking, that is this just giant structure that is somewhat difficult to repurpose for something equally scaled. So you have these giant, you know, convention size structures that are just sitting on the landscape on, on some lonely highway that are completely empty and either used only by like urban exploration people who are interested in just like the creepiness of, of poking into these spaces. Or there are some real real estate development projects, one in particular taking like, I believe, one of the oldest malls in the US and turning it into micro housing of taking storefronts and adapting them into actual residential property. And those those stories of like clear cut transitions seem somewhat rare. The more common story is like <laughs> photographer takes photos of dead mall in the death of winter in Detroit or something like that. And you have this opportunity for ruined porn aesthetics to take over. And it's less about the fact that this is like an urban issue and it's more just look at this cool thing, which in a way could be quite helpful if it gets, if it gets more people thinking about what the kind of impact of these kinds of economic centers are on the overall environment. Yeah, absolutely. I think, uh, you know, two things I would uh, add to that are, you know, a perfect example of sort of that, you know, hauntological kind of ruin porn aesthetic that you were mentioning is it was all over, you know, the web over the last, I think, six months or a year. But there was the abandoned mall in Bangkok, I think it was, that had, you know, totally abandoned, filled in with water over the years. And there was a huge, basically a fish pond, <laughs> but taking over the, you know, like the entire bottom floor of the mall. And the uh, eventually they decided to, you know, shut that down. And, you know, they had to catch all the fish and empty it and, you know, for demolition to repurpose the site. But, uh, you know, so again, I think those images are very attractive on some level to many people are certainly, you know, unique of these big sites that are, uh, you know, totally dead. And, you know, I guess, therefore, that hence the term uh, dead malls. I think the other term that goes along with this um, that we can maybe talk a little bit more about, and there have been some uh, great projects that we've featured on Arconnect over the years that look at these um, and how to repurpose them is this idea of ghost boxes, which is, you know, I think a very similar, it's not dead malls. It's not specifically a mall, but it's that idea, again, of that sort of post-war form of development, you know, suburban sprawl and taking these big boxes that are now basically, you know, dead. I mean, I think one of the things Walmart usually does is they saturate a, a market and then they shut down the competition 
and and then close the ones that are you know underperforming and and keep kind of you know and then move to like this super Walmart model. So you know again a huge huge opportunity in the in the contemporary landscape to take these boxes and repurpose them. <laughs> so for me, uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Round one. <laughs> <laughs> um. So, Nam, I remember reading years ago, and this was when I lived in Portland, so I'm thinking way back, it was, you know, it was at least 22 years ago. There was talk of of strip centers, and I'm talking more about the sort of dead big boxes now rather than the dead balls, the, the, the ghost boxes, turning those in or seeing, not turning those into, but having those naturally through the processes that artists move into industrials, you know, downtown warehouse spaces and and change them. And then that ultimately that leads to a new way of using these existing structures that artists would start to do that with strip centers. And that, you know, they have these like a, a, a target has a great big open, usually or frequently skylit space where an artist could build a large scale sculpture. Right. And then the gardens, the asphalt can sort of be dug up and, and turned into gardens. And there was this this notion of this happening on a very grassroots level that, that these would be these abandoned box, big box stores or strip centers would be the cheapest real estate. And so artists and lower income people would naturally gravitate to them and then turn that same creative power to them that they had done previously to places like Soho. Is that something that has happened in any kind of grassroots way? I mean, I think we've seen a lot of um, other uses moving into malls or or big boxes like churches is a, a big one. A lot of places have these big churches have uh, sort of big non-denominational churches have taken them over. Is it happening anywhere in a very ad hoc and grassroots, natural, organic sort of way that you've seen? I can't think of any examples off the top of my head. I mean, I was trying to think even locally of, you know, some of the kind of strip mall type of development that we have that's, you know, older kind of, you know, that has been, you know, slowly, you know, losing more and more stores over the years. And, you know, yeah, I can't think of any prominent examples, certainly not that we've, um, you know, featured or discussed on Arconnect before. One thought that does come to mind from your comment, though, is, um, you know, Portland, I believe it's Portland, is the, I think the center, and I don't know that they really have franchised yet, so to speak, but uh, is the home of, uh, I believe, the organization is called Deep Haver. And what they have done, you know, and I think they've been going for probably close to a decade now, is they basically take these big empty parking lots and turn them into these kind of more grassroots level type um, of gardens, you know, uh, green spaces, parks. And again, I think that would speak to the much more of that informal sort of grassroots model that you're talking about. Uh, Again, that's not really doing anything about the stores. The only other sort of example that I can think of, and this may have been discussed on Arconnect before, but there's a group out of Newcastle, and I don't think it's, and my geography is, you know, American, so I'm, I'm certainly not the best at it, but I don't believe it's Newcastle, England. I think it's Newcastle, Australia, if I'm remembering this correctly. There's an organization, and there are probably some other examples internationally as well, but there's one in particular that I know was talked a lot about uh, by Brian Boyer within the context of some of the work he was doing uh, with Brickstarter. But there's an organization out of uh, Australia that basically identified, you know, abandoned storefronts and found ways of temporarily leasing them out to artists and, you know, kind of startup businesses as, you know, temporary, you know, kind of taking the idea of a co-working space and kind of flipping it on its head. And instead of a co-working space, you're kind of sharing the city uh, for a brief moment in time before those sites are redeveloped. So I'd have to look back and note some of my notes over the years to uh, uh, see if I could identify the exact name, but it was something about Newcastle. Hey, Nam, you know, early on you talked about how you were 
connected to architecture through like policy and those are the kinds of things that you're interested in. Do you find it frustrating? As frustrating as I find it that somehow we can leverage public-private partnerships for parks, we can leverage other kinds of public-private partnerships with stadiums, but there isn't anything that the that cities have done effectively to use these buildings that have falling off the tax rolls, essentially, um, because there's, there really isn't anybody going to them anymore and not leveraging them or forcing the developer, who, whoever owns the property, to kind of think more creatively. I think there's no shortage of, of great ideas. It's just short uh, in terms of the architecture profession, in terms of the design profession. It just seems there's a shortage of outside the box thinking from the people that matter. Yes. I mean, uh, I certainly share your frustration. You know, I do have to admit, I thought you were going to make a comment about uh, the frustration that can sometimes arise attending sort of public comment, you know, and other sorts of meetings related. I know Donna expressed some of this recently. That is, I think, an easy source of frustration. But yeah, I mean, people, you know, I feel like in terms of, you know, civic leaders, they talk a lot about public-private partnerships, but you don't see it. You only see it in certain areas. I think, you know, Probably that has somewhat to do with, you know, certainly, again, just speaking here as a layperson, you know, it's easy to, I mean, and again, it's kind of surprising, but maybe not so much. But, you know, it's easy to get uh, someone to donate a bunch of money and then you put their name on a new wing of a museum or, you know, a park, you know, you put their name on a plaque or something like that. But it does seem as if it's hard to find that same sort of opportunity to have those partnerships when you're talking about, you know, more urban revitalization. Well, also the difficulty with dead malls in particular is not just the difficulty with dead malls. It's the difficulty with whatever surrounding urban situation or lack thereof exists in the area. So I remember reading one of these pieces that we recently posted, Dead Malls and Shopping Dinosaurs, where it kind of debunks a few of the myths about why, just like in conventional wisdom, why we might think that malls are kind of falling out of fashion. And, you know, one of the common justifications for that is that, oh, people are shopping online more. And that really doesn't actually account for so much of a break in sales that would actually kill the malls. So it's not that. So what exactly is it that is like driving more of these malls down? Well, a lot of it has to do simply with just whatever businesses and whichever tier of of the economy that malls are appealing to. So like high-end and luxury malls aren't really going anywhere. They seem to be doing pretty much fine. And I know, Donna, you had um, an instance that spoke to that in your in Indianapolis, that the ones that were surviving there still seem to be the ones that would cater to like a, a wealthier clientele. But you still have like the ones in the catering to a more middle class society. Those are the ones that are really going down. And I would guess that oftentimes those two distinctions, those different types of malls would also correlate to where that mall's position is in relation to a larger intense city. Of course, L.A., land of strip malls, um, we still like good old civilized people put our giant malls like out in the relative like boonies. You have your outlet malls and everything just off a highway that are totally in an area you would never go to unless you were like making a pilgrimage to the mall. Um, unlike these more like uh, traditional ideas of like the urban center being also a mall, like you have a maybe an outdoor mall or something that is like put in the middle of the city because that is exactly where the clients are and the people who are going to shop there and keep it surviving are also living in the middle of the city and will also want to shop there. And so in that scenario, you can actually do something where you, you know, hire artists. So you 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 bring in these pieces or these spaces to be used in interesting ways on a somewhat temporary basis. But that model is like nearly impossible if you don't have a surrounding urban system to support and be interested in the structure after there's no longer commerce going inside of it. You know, here in Minneapolis, we have, obviously, we have the Mall of America. They're constantly adding. In fact, they're going through a major expansion right now. There's uh, the Galleria, which is in uh, the more high-end mall where you would find um, 
generally um, incomes are probably tipping, you know, exist past the 100K, they're exceeding that. And then we have the suburban type malls. And then I think the big thing now has been the the more outlet malls. I think the newfangled thing is the outlet mall. But, you know, what's been happening here too is that the, because when the economy hit the skids in the, a couple of years ago, schools were still, you know, schools were growing and they were, uh, their populations were expanding. But the people, the taxpayers there were feeling the pinch and so you would go out for a referendum and you would fail, bonding referendum. So they have become more creative about how they acquire space and have been looking for transitional spaces in, in malls that are now dead or large big box retailers like that that are no longer exist, such as, um, you know, Circuit City. Um, so they're reusing those spaces for schools. And, you know, the MSNR project is fantastic. It's a, it's a great, I mean, it take, taking a Walmart and turning it into a, a library, community center, whatever. I mean, it's, you know, a couple hundred thousand square feet and they've managed to turn it into something really important for that community. And there's not enough of that going on, but it's, it's happening on a smaller scale. It's just not happening as, as often as it needs to. Nam, I, I know you have something to respond to Ken with, but I wanted to ask you before you do that to also include something to this effect, because um, I think feel like in this conversation, we've kind of casually been referring to malls, but also we include Walmart sometimes that just kind of falls in with a line of discussion that like, oh, there are these other giant retailers that seemingly sell everything and they occupy similar spaces um, in the environment, in the US at least. So in your research on dead malls, or just whatever you were going to say next, do you feel like the discussion around Walmarts as like this giant community center, all-purpose commercial center, do you think there's some like co-history that you can kind of chart between the advent of malls and the advent of Walmart? Yeah. I mean, so, you know, there were a couple of things I was going to mention. I mean, you, but, uh, when you were speaking uh, just before, Ken, you know, you, you, you were wondering about the role of uh, location in the ability of this sort of redevelopment, for instance. And I think, you know, one of the, you know, stories or posts I was going to kind of point to to answer that question is the uh, post from a couple of weeks ago about um, a mall in Rhode Island. You know, I think it was one of America's first shopping malls, and um, it had been redeveloped uh, at least partially, into housing. Um, and I think one of the reasons that that was possible, you know, it was these micro apartments. And the reason micro apartments worked in that location is because it was, you know, right kind of in a much more sort of urban location. It wasn't way out in the suburbs, you know, and the people that were renting them were people that would, you know, need to be close to businesses downtown or at least in the urban core more to, uh, you know, speak. In terms of, you know, the the Walmart issue, I think, you know, again, there's, you know, I think the two terms that we've kind of been talking about is dead malls and ghost boxes. And I think there is an obvious overlap there. Again, they're both sort of forms of this sort of post-war, you know, uh, suburban style, so to speak, development. I mean, you obviously do see some big boxes now like Walmart and Target moving into more urban centers and having to take a slightly different form in terms of how they do those developments. But, you know, generally more dense, maybe parking below or above the building. But yeah, I think there's a definitely a correlation there between the two types of terms that we're discussing today. And, you know, I think in terms of the, you know, I, I put up a post not that long ago, a couple of days ago about, um, you know, someone who was talking sort of about Walmart as the sort of small town, rural American town, you know, kind of town square now. And, you know, I think that what we do, what we would have to sort of be careful of is 
part of the reason maybe in those kind of more rural areas that that's happening is because there isn't sort of the ability to do some of what we're talking about with, you know, ways of of sort of dealing with dead malls, which is sort of this idea of retrofitting suburban, you know, retrofitting suburbia. I mean, I think, you know, Ellen Dunham Jones, she's the one who sort of popularized that term and certainly put maybe, you know, I think there were probably a few things I read about dead malls before that, but that was kind of what put the sort of whole topic on my radar is this idea of these suburban spaces that we, you know, are now failing that we need to somehow, you know, upgrade and uh, adapt to the the future. I think the last thing I would say in terms of some of what Ken was talking about is, you know, the other big shift you're seeing, I think, um, and we have some examples of this locally in, um, you know, Jacksonville or even not so much Gainesville, but you're starting to see a little bit of that is this idea of, you know, now what people want is sort of, it's still a mall, but it's a faux mall or a faux <laughs> street experience of these lifestyle kind of centers where, you know, it's an outdoor mall, basically, you know, so you have your walkable, you know, your walkable pedestrian kind of flavor, uh, but it's still essentially a mall. You know, I, again, I think one of the questions I may have posed early on when we started talking about this session is the idea of, you know, is the only way to deal with these kinds of things, is the only way to fix a dead mall or a, a ghost box to do some sort of a new urbanist transit oriented development where it's more walkable. You know, again, not to say, I mean, I'm a huge fan, certainly in comparison to the alternative of new urbanism, but, you know, I sometimes just can't help but wonder, are we simply kind of, I don't know, just continuing a bad thing or putting icing on a shit cake or something? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll point to the, the Ellen Dunham Jones TED Talk, which we'll put a link to is is fantastic. And it's called Retrofitting Suburbia. And it's a few years old now, but it's still really relevant. And she was one of the first people really talking about this. Nam, I don't know if you heard the podcast we did right after the AIA convention. I went to one of the seminars I went to there was by a woman named Brenda K. Shear, who's a professor of planning at University of Utah. And she talked about this notion of entering an age of healing, where rather than doing big projects, we have to go in and look at what we have already and figure out how can we fix it. And I thought she was talking in very similar ways to what Ellen Dunham Jones is talking about with making sort of small, taking small measures, doing small things, taking this enormous, where, where I grew up in Arizona, I remember when they built, the mall was called Metro Town. It was enormous, you know, this like set, six anchors and just huge amounts of parking. And that going into those places and basically making them smaller in certain ways is a way to get it back towards a more urban walkability. And I will also put up as an example, near where I live now in Indianapolis, there was a mall. When I moved here, it was, you know, 50% empty and everything else, all the other stores that were in it were, were quite run down and sort of lower rent stores. And it's now been gutted, basically. They cut the whole center out and turned that into a parking area, a movie theater, and, you know, built a new movie theater and built more of a exterior strip mall typology. And there's a big Target store there now. And it's a very successful development because it is close in in the city. It's very close to smaller walkable neighborhoods. And just at, at this point, I think the, the notion of the big indoor mall had just become not a way that people prefer to shop anymore, right? It just feels a little more, you're getting a little bit more outside of the Target. You're getting a little bit more of a custom small neighborhood store feel rather than chain stores in the in the mall, you know? So I think uh, this topic of how to retrofit this stuff is still really ongoing. And didn't Rem Koolhaas just recently say we need to stop building things and, and think about how to fix the things we've built already? I believe I read that. <laughs> or don't tear it down if it's, it can still technically shelter something. Yeah. 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 
I, I think actually just to bring up Walmart one more time, I don't know so much about this, but I know a little bit about the history of Walmart, how it started as a business was really as a tiny, small, like family run, small market business in somewhere in Arkansas, in rural Arkansas. And it, the whole business model was based on a Christian patriarchy, like straight up. It was the ideology of the family was we need to create a business that is run on strong Christian values. And the way that we are going to actually create the business hierarchies in, and run our business is going to be based strictly on those ideals. And when the business just kind of began to get very successful and started to expand and like get larger and larger and go to different places, it became increasingly more difficult to actually scale that, you know, nuclear Christian family model that they had been using in order to like run these businesses. It suddenly became, well, you need to still have a manager. You can't just have like the father figure of the store helping everyone out and telling everyone what to do. That after a certain point, it just gets too large, especially came into view when you'd have these more urban Walmarts or Walmarts that would encroach more onto on either the periphery of a larger city or in inside the suburbs of a larger city. So I think those these two developments are like definitely parallel in some way and that not that one is the barometer for another, but just that we're in the specific moment where certain things just aren't going to scale anymore and we need to definitely figure out how to deal with them. Starts with local governments. <laughs> <laughs> right, your congressman. That's right. Um, so Nam, thank you for coming on and talking about dead malls. This is definitely not something that is ever going to go away. Well, hopefully it is. Hopefully one day we'll like just all of the dead malls will be converted into incredibly lively urban farms. Yeah. <laughs> so, Soylent factories. Something. <laughs> Soylent factories. Oh, no. <laughs> Reincarnated malls. There you go. Angel malls. Yes. But yeah, we wanted to, we hope that you can stay on and you can talk with us about other news items happening this week. I'd love to. Yeah. Great. So unfortunately, there is no clean transition out of a dead mall into, um, <laughs> <laughs> into other topics for this week. But one major item that came up mere, um, mere hours before we were recording our podcast episode this week is the news that for um, one of the World Trade Center towers, we have no longer Norman Foster being the designer, but Bjarke Ingels Group has been called in to take over. Now, this is kind of like a, often it's easy to see this as kind of a watershed moment in Biggs history because they have, of course, done large scale projects before, but nothing so big and New York and corporate as this. So this seems like a very significant moment, especially given who the project is no longer belonging to. It was Norman Foster. It was Norman, Norman Foster. Foster. Oh, yes. <laughs> I thought I mentioned that before, but Maybe in case, <laughs> not to make it mysterious, no longer Norman Foster. Yeah, this is a pretty huge commission for big. I mean, they've been moving up very quickly, but I mean, this is at a whole other level. I mean, this project has like, you know, the the attention of the entire world. And there's a lot of financial and business investment into this project and a lot of cultural awareness just due to, due to the history of the site. It's going to be really interesting to see what they what they do, especially because like everything that's been done on the site so far has been pretty bland. Well, I can't imagine that it will actually not be bland. Like, given the, the context of it, I mean, it's incredibly restrictive culturally to, to do anything there. It's going to be incredibly difficult. And obviously, Big has a very distinctive visual style, but I, it's really hard to imagine that automatically being okay here, that it would just be fine for them to do something like that. But, I mean, it seems like the developers chose Big probably for a more innovative solution because they're not known for doing anything traditional. I guess I'm thinking more in terms of like 
how it just the visual impression you immediately get from looking at it, like what kind of presence this thing will have. I don't I don't doubt that it will be innovative in some way, but the actual like the uh, silhouette it will imprint on the cityscape and how it will be factored into the skyline and everything that I feel will be much finer line for big to tread. It will be. I'm really interested in this. And it was it was this sort of split second of utter shock when I heard this news that Big is not only doing this project, but replacing Norman Foster in this project. And to me, it completely felt like a a changing of the guard, you know, a handing over of the scepter from one generation to another. I mean, I I honestly think it's that significant. And I keep thinking, going back to our podcast with Ned Kramer, when he was talking about the the people who were the rebels when I was in school, you know, when the deconstructivist show happened at MoMA and it was Zaha and Kup Himmelblau. And, you know, they're all as maybe not Kup Himmelblau, but but Zaha, certainly, they are as establishment as you can imagine at this point. And I feel like Big just crossed that threshold. Like, he has been our much beloved enfant terrible. Is that how you say that? <laughs> and it's suddenly, this to me feels like, okay, there's a whole new game in the way that architecture projects are being viewed these days. Uh, yeah, this feels huge to me. It, it Not just because it's big. It feels like, an, like a major shift in architecture society community right now. It's a big deal. Is there any precedent throughout history where such a, I don't know if important is the is the right word, but such a monumental project has been commissioned to such a young architect? Oh, that's an interesting prospect. What about Graves building? He was pretty young. The Portland building, he was pretty young. Yeah. yeah. But that doesn't yeah. even compare to the... Uh, no, not, not, I mean... And, and to me, it's more the older, more established architect being replaced by the young upstart, which I know has happened in other locations, and I can't think of of any off the top of my head. Didn't shop take over for Gary at, at the Hudson Yards project or something? I, I might be confused. Nam, did you have something you want to add to this? I was just going to, you know, what's interesting to me about this is from re- reading one of the previous posts where this was kind of hinted at from a couple, uh, you know, a week or two ago that's uh, included in the most recent post. It, it uh, I don't know, I get the impression that there's something about the actual, I mean, it's obviously the symbolism is, is you know, is, is vivid, but you almost get the impression from reading that previous post that there is something about I mean, this idea that Foster's design or Foster is not capable of designing the right type of building. I mean, there's an allusion to his design wouldn't have it was focused for bank trading floors and didn't give the right kind of layout for studio space, which is what Fox would need. And I mean, again, that may just be kind of marketing fluff to, you know, kind of shine over the fact that it is being transitioned in the way it is. But, you know, I just wonder, I mean, obviously, you know, Foster and his firm is more than capable, I would think, of changing a design to meet the new needs of a client. I just I wonder, you know, I mean, there is a quote there in in the journal about, you know, something about the floor space and the layout of that. And I just wonder, you know, again, if that's just kind of something to redirect attention or if that's actually what's actually, you know, something there. Well, I think that Foster's definitely a safer bet. I mean, there's no doubt that they would be able to solve the problem of designing two World Trade Center. I wonder if Big's presence in New York has had much of a role in in this decision because he has established quite a strong presence within the city of New York. I wonder if Norman has pissed off Rupert Murdoch at all. I mean, you know, <laughs> being that uh, Foster's from London, I wonder if there's some kind of... <laughs> you're so, so good at cutting right to the meat and you're a vegetarian and yet you just cut right to the bone of every, of every discussion. I will get right to it. You have to piss off Rupert Murdoch a lot to be on his shit list, I think, because I think a lot of people piss him off. Maybe That's just as true. many as the number of people that he pisses off. So it's probably a good, it's probably a given then that Foster pissed him off then. 
one of the things I wanted to comment on quickly, I didn't know where uh, Julia got this um, this little tidbit, but it says um, that effectively the building will stay the same and that the base will be altered. And I, I, I'm trying to figure out how, how she how she inferred that from any of the writing. But what's interesting is that the building will remain the second tallest, which kind of seems strange that, you know, uh, you throw out this other guy and you bring in this really ambitious young architect and you've got this media mogul who certainly doesn't play second fiddle to, to just about anybody. And yet he's got a kowtow to, um, you know, World Trade Center One and, and David Child. So that, that's an interesting thing. I mean, not maybe just more fodder for Gawker and Curbed and stuff like that. But, you know. Well, I mean, it's going to be the location of like the most, we're going to have so many people flooding through that area. That's going to be like, it's going to continue being like a tourist epicenter of the city. It's going to be an incredibly, it's already incredibly significant space. No matter what you put there, it's kind of like, it's going to be highly charged, highly, highly charged and highly critiqued. Yeah. Let me just throw this other thing out there. Now, let's not forget, if it's just a media, if the, the first ground, the ground floor is all going to be this media component. Fox News is going to be the guardians of 9-11, as they have been since 9-11. So <laughs> it's just, you know, that's the other thing. I mean, it's such a cynical move here to bring these purveyors of mass destruction in media and bringing, you know, the, the war, you know, the war in Iraq, really kind of bringing all of the bullshit around that. And now they're the guardians and placed at the front door of such a sacred site, you know, it just further makes that whole effort really just kind of leaves a poor taste, I think. It's going to leave a poor taste in a lot of people's mouth, knowing that they're going to be there. Well, they can duke it out with Condé Nast next door. They can all figure it out. Sashay, sashay. (laughs) (laughs) So how about we move a little bit elsewhere in Manhattan over to Cooper Union? Yes, Ken, I know this has been a soft spot in your interests. Having Obviously, there's a lot of difficult news coming out of Cooper Union having the historical decision to have them start charging tuition, which went into effect last fall. We've just been watching how students are reacting to this news, both that aren't, are still are not paying tuition, but are graduating in the context of this completely new model. And there's this really fascinating group of student activists who call themselves Free Cooper Union, who have orchestrated all of these both activist and protest actions at the school to try to get the administration to revert back to a tuition-free model, no matter how intractable at that point, at this point that may seem. But the organization has, or um, Free Cooper Union has put together a bunch of different protest efforts, and the most recent of which was this action at the graduation ceremony this that took place a week or so ago, where the students literally turned their back on the president of Cooper Union to show their disapproval and their effectively public shaming of this figure for helping usher in the decision that they would then start charging tuition. So I just think this is a fascinating story because of the attention that the student body takes to continuing this tradition and the culture of student activism that has taken hold and Cooper Union, not just since the tuition decision, but just the strong heritage of having this pride in the fact that you are having this incredible privilege by, to attend this university or this um, academic institution for free. And so I think everything that comes out of it has been incredibly charged and incredibly difficult. But this protest movement in particular was very inspiring and very, um, I think, well carried out. As a personal note, I went to UC Berkeley and I saw my fair share of really poorly orchestrated activism efforts by the part of students. (laughs) And this one just looked like it was really well done. The actual organization of 
Free Cooper Union has an amazing website where they have everything from like a disorientation reader to kind of deliver their their necessary information to the general public of like what they stand for and what situations they're involved in. And also just are seem very adept at student organizing and making their opinions known. You know, I've been reading um, off and on this book about Joseph Boys. It's a small little pamphlet. I tried to get a reading group started on Arconnect um, around this book. And one of the things I remember, and I'm paraphrasing here a little bit, but talking about art is in everything. At the root of all creative activity, there's this art, anything that you make is art. And I think it's generally the the artists at uh, the art school students at Cooper Union who have really have done a fantastic job of orchestrating this in such a way as to they have the New York State Attorney General's office investigating this. I mean, I think that is just for a school, for students uh, on this level to be able to get the state attorney general to be activated and to investigate Cooper Union and what's happened here is, is really a testament to their ability to organize and stay focused. I mean, it could have easily, after tuition was instituted, it could have, this movement could have easily just gone away and no one would have said boo. But they are manifestly pushing this forward and not letting the fact that they're graduating get in the way of a good protest. And I think the to shame this idiot and what they've, you know, at their graduation ceremony was just a real encouraging sign that, you know, I think millennials or people have a lot of bad opinions about millennials, but I've been, you know, reassured by their activity uh, that they, that our country with people, with students like this and young people like this, you know, if they continue these kinds of activist approaches towards changing political situations, I think we'll be fine. I want to take a slightly different take on this and I completely support the movement. And I, the, the, you know, I think that the whole situation of charging tuition is, is shameful to the history of the institution. And I completely support one of my former students is there now. She walks around wearing her red square on her jacket every day. I absolutely support what they're doing. I just could not help but think of back in January when the all the police turned their back on Mayor Bill de Blasio in New York, that I was furious that they would be so disrespectful to someone as to turn their back on him. And now that I support these students and what their protest is, I have to really re-examine for myself. It's incredibly rude to turn your back on someone when they're speaking like that. I mean, it's incredibly disrespectful. You know, it's always the question of how should a protest be presented in a way that makes your point? It's hard. It's hard. You know, I I have to disagree with you here. And we don't ever disagree on anything. Oh, we disagree on plenty. Context. (laughs) Yeah. I, I think context is important. At a funeral where your political message is not, you don't make your political statements at a funeral for an officer you're supposed to be mourning. That's a great contextual point. You're right. You're right. Because it's not about the union. It's about mourning this family that has lost a father, son, brother. You know, you know what? This is where you make your statements. I mean, we've had enough, you know, people come to college graduations and, and spouting off their you know, giving their long, boring statements um, about uh, the future. And here were students actively pursuing their right to speech in a way that really said, you know what, Um, you're not part of our future. We're going to disregard your statement because we know it's full of shit and you're full of shit and you don't represent us. And we certainly don't want to look at you and we're not going to shake your hand. And I think that's that's that says volumes to students coming in, because now that's a model that, you know, they have to hold up because they're the ones that are going to be paying the tuition. <laughs> and, you know, they were come, hoping, I mean, they were probably grinding away 
in high school and thinking, you know, two years ago when they were thinking about the dream of attending Cooper Union, that the dream of attending Cooper Union is this prestigious institution that they weren't going to be paying tuition. Well, they still have that dream to attend Cooper Union. And, you know, unlike a lot of um, students, maybe they were driven and that, you know, they know that the faculty is good and they know that the resources are well handled, or at least in terms of the access to resources and they're in the, the greatest city on the planet. And, you know, now they have to pay tuition. And that's because of, um, you know, financial malfeasance or, you know, the desire to have a named building by our named building by a named architect on their site. You know, you know, those things will come out. But I think it's important that they've handled it pretty well. And there's been one particular instance that was a little bit troubling. And I think that was kind of addressed there was a photograph taken of a particular individual that, and they made a, they were making light of her um, and how she was hiding her face. It was, it was just not, it was an administrator, kind of, um, you know, not even a high level administrator. It was like a bureaucrat in, at Cooper Union. And they were really kind of, you know, um, making light of her. And it was really, it made, it turned people off. It turned some students off that were supportive of the mission. And I, you know, you're allowed to have these hiccups where you make ill-advised um, statements or do some things that are ill-advised. They're not, you know, they're not critical points of, you know, failure for the movement. They just have to be careful about who they, you know, stay on point. This particular individual who runs this school is the one they should keep focus on, you know, the board, keep the focus on the board I and mean, just keep it that way. But, you know, low-level administrators in an institution is it's not where you want to grind your axe. You know, you want to keep the, the, keep the eye on the ball and keep the attention focused in the right direction. And I think they had a a little bit of a hiccup, but I think they corrected. Yeah, I, I just have to jump in and say, you know, I, I personally just really pleased to see them make that statement. You know, I think uh, obviously the Cooper Union issue is not something that is, you know, personal to me. Um, but, you know, I think anyone who's concerned about the growing cost of education and sort of the equity that goes along with that, you know, I think it was a troubling move. And certainly, you know, I think anything, I, I vaguely remember some news about the AG investigation, but, you know, any sort of ability to kind of put the spotlight back on these people and, you know, whether or not their continued efforts, uh, I think it was at least, I've seen at least it was alluded to that their continued efforts are partly why the president's contract wasn't renewed, whether that's true or not. I mean, it's, you know, certainly nice to think that that was the case. Yeah, the somewhat too convenient seeming timing of the president's contract not being renewed along with the hope, or at least the um, presumed hope that that might somehow assuage this lawsuit that's being charged against the school by students, but also some faculty members. It's, it's hard to say, but it is it is hard to also not chalk that one up for the students, at least. <laughs> All right. Well, moving on to our last news discussion topic for the day. So this instance has to do with a particular Italian company called CoContest. CoContest is a way for, or a website, a way for um, people who already have a property and are interested in doing some design work on that property to get in touch with as many different um, designers as possible and try to solicit a competitive bid for that project. And it's just an online platform that aims to connect mostly Italian at this point, but also all over Europe architects to potential clients. And it's come under fire in Italy um, from the official accreditation board of architects and planners there for kind of undermining the industry, for kind of voicing the same arguments that have been made countless times against certain instances of sharing economy businesses such as Uber or Airbnb, that in fact, this service is degrading the industry and it's not protecting the consumer. 
So it's really dire climate in Italy as well. This is taking place in, um, I believe there's somewhere around like 400 people for every architect in Italy. There's just far, far too many architects, totally bloated industry and not enough work. So there was a real demand for something like this to kind of connect struggling and wanting work designers with more and more projects or more potential projects at least. So does anyone have any thoughts about whether this overall is like a cheapening of the project of the process of finding work? Is it overall a good thing? Is it too early to tell whether it's good or bad, but simply an interesting prospect in, in how professional practice happens nowadays? You know, the only, I mean, this is a tough one for me because I find any of the, anytime these topics about sort of, you know, again, and this isn't exactly the sharing economy, but anytime you have this conversation about sort of disruption and sort of using digital tools to, you know, sort of change the way things happen. I have to admit, I have not read the details of how this website works other than what was posted on Archonnect. Uh, but I don't know, I just, you know, I, I, it seems on the one hand that the whole promise of sort of the digital revolution and disruption is to give a broader audience. You know, there is obviously the worry that, you know, this, like you said, undermines, you know, the profession. But even if this isn't the tool, you know, it seems like there's got to be some way in which you can sort of bridge those two, you know, that tension and, and develop, you know, I know there's was some talk of, you know, some sort of Tinder for, you know, architect or some, you know, again, some sort of uh, some way of using digital tools to broaden, you know, the reach. AIA has a find your architect, you know, maybe they need to turn that into an app, you know, I don't know, you know, and, and then there's the always the issue of, you know, in the that comes up all the time on, on the site of architects are always joining, you know, doing competitions and sort of undercutting themselves or not pricing their services right. So, you know, I'm sure that the actual professionals can speak more to that side of things than I can. Well, I have to say, when I saw this article, my first reaction to it was just like, oh, it's another reality show. It doesn't interest me. Like people looking for, you know, someone to give them free advice on their whatever kitchen redesign. It it just doesn't interest me. It feels to me like that's not. And I think one of the posters to the article said, you know, the people who value good quality will still seek out a good designer. The silver lining, I would have to say, is that, you know, it, it, the more you can convince people or, or show people that architects can design all kinds of things. You know, I've got this funny shape, a little empty space between a hallway and a linen closet. And I'd like to turn it into a bookshelf. Is that something an architect would be interested in? I think a lot of architects would be. I would be. If that kind of dissemination of the idea that small design projects, that any project can be designed well, can increase through this kind of website, then I think that's great. But overall, I just it was, I just had a sort of sense of exhaustion to it. Like, okay, here we go. More cheapening of what should be, you know, a quality product. <laughs> I don't have a problem at all with this. I actually think it's a great idea. It's probably most definitely not going to work in the way that they've already set it up. But this is, you know, a first step. I don't see this platform as a way for any established architect to maintain his or her practice. It seems like a great way for a talented young architect to get their work out there and start getting work. There's a lot of really talented architects out there that are not getting very much work. And there's a lot of shitty architects that are getting work all the time. And, you know, I think any kind of platform that can start leveling the playing field is good. And if people are underbidding and delivering shitty work, then that's going to, you know, that's hopefully going to self-correct that problem over time, you know, if, if a platform like this works the way it should. You know, I, I think part of the problem is, is that, you know, like Donna said, I'll design a doghouse. If you want me to design a doghouse, I'll design a doghouse. But no, nobody thinks of an architect will design a doghouse. Uh, nobody thinks about an architect would design a piece of shelving for, or a piece of furniture. We're never the first thought in the mind of someone when they're going to create something that isn't architecture. And unless this site 
can show and demonstrate that we should be the first thought in every aspect of your um, interactive life when it comes to you touching something with your hand and that the first thought should be, oh, an architect could do that. You know, even if we can't, the, the great thing about us and, the, you know, it's the thing that we that's often been said about us. We're the jack of all trades, master of none. If we don't know how to do something, we'll know someone who knows how to do it. If Donna doesn't know how to, can't fabricate something, she just goes to the, leans over in, in bed and says, hey, do you know how to do this? And she talks to her <laughs> husband about how to do it. <laughs> Damn right. That, we do it all the time. <laughs> so, I mean, you know, I, a couple of things, I think Paul's right. This could work. But the problem is, is don't tell people you're going to provide them significant cost savings. What the fuck do you know? Yeah, I mean, yeah, you exactly. Don't shit. This is not replacing, you know, this is no. providing an, an alternative model because safe. I mean, there are architects out there that can't get any work because they're just really, really bad. And maybe they need to be matched up with a really bad client just to have work. Yeah. You know, <laughs> this might be the platform yeah. for that. Maybe, maybe that should be their tagline, matching shitty architects with shitty clients, <laughs> but keeping everybody busy. You know, it's like, um, filtering out. That's a great tagline. It's <laughs> <laughs> a great tagline. But to, you know, but to Miles point, Miles made a good point on the site is that, you know, here's another opportunity for architects to do free work. And, you know, if it was so easy, then my grandmother could do it. You know, part of what we do is we sit down with a client. We we don't just read a brief and present. I mean, that's for competitions. And if that's what this is, this is a competition site, then that's one thing. But if we're talking about a real client, I need to hear them. I need to understand what makes them them and what makes it personal for them, for me to even be interested in doing their work. You know, responding to a brief, a one-page brief about, you know, you need a you need a jacuzzi in your dining room because it makes your cats feel good. I mean, it doesn't tell me shit about you as a person and what's interesting to you. I mean, other than you've got cats, cats and jacuzzis. Like getting yeah. jacuzzis in, in the middle of your <laughs> dining room. seem like a terrible I mix. Mean, this right? type of business has existed for a long time in the graphic design industry. There's like a $5 yeah. logo mm-hmm. website, I think, yes. yeah. you know, where it does fit a need. If you want a quick, shitty logo for something that you don't really care about, you're not going to go to a, a branding company and pay them $20,000 to get something amazing. You're going to get some somebody to whip you up something because you don't have time and it doesn't really matter. You know, so I think I, I think the same thing applies for this site. There are people that just really don't care what they get. They just want to get somebody to do it for them. And if it's somebody that, you know, has gone through the training and is willing to do it and nobody really cares, you know, what, what the end result is like, then here's the tool for you. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, just to kind of chime in here, I think, uh, you know, as you guys have all said, it's certainly for people who either don't have a job or are starting off in the, you know, in the industry. You know, I mean, the thing that came to my mind was the the five cent guy, you know, who was all over the, the webs a few years ago, you know, like, again, it's just a creative way of, you know, I think his scenario was, you know, he was laid off. But, you know, again, I think it's a similar idea that, you know, people who need to break into the market or again, those people who just need a shitty, you know, like the, you know, that cheap project or, you know, that sort of thing. Here, let me let me just give you an example, right? So I'm looking at their website and I'm perusing and I'm looking at their pricing index, right? So if you had a small apartment, let's say small apartments, um, essentially a studio apartment, so maybe 600 square feet. If you just want a plan and some fixture layouts and a plan HD, I don't know what that is, you're paying $400 for a layout of a small apartment. If you want the full deal, like sections, renders, 
Pretty much. And and I don't know if this includes construction documents. We're talking $1,450. So what I need to understand about this site is that what is a deliverable? Is it just a pretty rendering so you can go out and price it? Or are these buildable drawings? Is this a bu- Because $1,450, I would barely fly to Italy for that amount of money. I mean, I'm not going to be doing a small apartment for that amount of money. Well, I think that's exactly what the reason why people are revolting against this idea is that how do we have any guarantee that this is actually a real proposal, that any of this will actually work? And that's how people are arguing that this is something that's degrading the industry because it's getting to that point at all. So it's kind of it's kind of like this going to be abused, no matter what, the program is going to be abused because that'll always be the case. Whether the structure can exist past that abuse and actually serve some better end is, I think, what the what the originators had in mind. Yeah. I mean, if you look at the projects on their browse contest section, I mean, we're talking, the people who own these kinds of places do not go to shitty architects. All right. You don't put the shitty architecture on your website. No. Well, what are, what are the images that you're looking at? Are they nice Nice buildings? Photographs. Yeah, these are photographs of like, you know, hey, this is what I want my apartment. I don't know what the photograph or how it's connected. Oh, they're examples? Yeah, they're browse okay. content, so, you uh, know, contest section. I think a lot of people that would use a service like this, they would be like, you know what? Let's spend a couple thousand dollars, see what we come up with. There's a 99% chance we're just going to end up like going with a real architect, but let's just see what happens. You know, maybe it might be like a, a conversation starter or, you know, maybe it's maybe it's something that they want that's super, super easy and they would rather pay two dollars and not have to look up an architect and talk to them on the phone and just get somebody to just, you know, draw up a plan, you know, without having to do anything besides logging into their account and posting the, the brief. Donna, did you have a comment? I, yeah, I just wanted to point out one one thing, which is that this argument being made against this website is coming from a band of architects, basically. They're, they're protecting their own turf, right, by saying that this is a cheapening of what they do. And I just wanted to point out I missed his talk, but uh, Ken, it's the talk you went to on the morning at the convention when, no, no, you were up way earlier than any of the rest of us for lots of reasons. Obi, was it Obi Okulo? One of his slides was one of the things he said that Ken tweeted and I thought was brilliant was, architecture is happening without us because we are adamant that it cannot happen without us. Like that, that gets to exactly what this website is doing. People are going to be designing stuff for people. And as much as architects stamp their feet because we're licensed and they should be coming to us for a better product, people are still going to go to these other people to design something for them if they like it, uh, you know? Yeah, exactly. And and what I, what I am kind of just confused about is why does any architect that feels confident about their about their abilities and about the work that they produce feel threatened in any way by this because i i mean i can't imagine that this would ever take over no <laughs> you know this would never steal work from a decent architect you're not going to build two world trade center by this method right <laughs> no you know I, I i don't see it as is any kind of threat and for anybody to claim it to be a threat i think it's really you know i think it's kind of embarrassing to even feel threatened by something like this as an architect well, you start your um, shitty, we match up shitty designers with shitty clients website, Paul, and you can be a competitor <laughs> with them. Yeah. <laughs> Wireframing right now. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, should we move on to endorsements? Let's do it. Who has the first endorsement this week? I'm happy to go. Now, go, Nam. Yeah. Go. So I actually just caught, you know, I'm always running a week or two behind, it seems like, with the podcast, but I just caught up with your hot dog cast with uh, James Bieber? Bieber. It is Bieber. I I know why you hesitated, but Bieber. We all hesitated. 
Um, and I just, I have to say, I was super impressed. I mean, it sounds like, you know, I mean, uh, as was the, the whole, you know, Sessions crew, but I was super impressed with um, his stance on the AIA and their ethics vote and, you know, the the whole discussion around the, you know, uh, I can't remember the acronym, but the, you know, the organization that's trying to, you know, push that ethics position about not designing, um, you know, spaces of incarceration. And I just thought that that post in particular was just amazing. And, you know, I, I wish I, I would love to see, you know, more architects take that position in public. The other quick two things I would mention, you know, I know one of the questions uh, Ken's liked to ask recently is, um, you know, what are you reading or listening to? I've got, you know, as always, I'm sure we all have a huge stack of things. We're kind of you know, working through whether we're not actually reading them in the recent moments. But uh, the two books I'm kind of excited about uh, digging into, I just got Networks of New York, an Internet Infrastructure Field Guide. Uh, you may have seen some of this floating around the web, but uh, it's kind of a self-published thing. Uh, I think it was a Kickstarter, actually. But um, basically, it's exactly what it sounds like, a, a field guide to the uh, Internet Infrastructure of New York, everything from security, you know, models of security cameras to uh, Stingray devices to, you know, buildings that are the hubs of the internet, you know. And then the other one is by Grady Clay, Close Up, How to Read the American City. Probably something, you know, some of you may have um, come across in time. I think it was actually recommended to me by Stephen, you know, our, God, I can't remember his last name. Stephen Ward. Yes, Stephen Ward. Ward. I think uh, recommended that at some point. Yeah, those would be my three endorsements. Well, that was pretty great to have a Arconnect Sessions endorsement. And that was a first. <laughs> we got to have more guests on. <laughs> yeah, you can't do it yourself, right. I think. I would never endorse those people. No. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Well, I, my endorsement actually relates to our conversation earlier, and I wasn't sure if it was going to come up during the conversation or not. But there's an article on the site right now called Can't Find Office Space in San Francisco? Try the mall. And it's about a co-work space happening inside a mall, and it's being started by Bespoke. And what I love about it is it's kind of a, we have a couple co-work spaces here in Indianapolis, but what I think is really interesting about this one is placing it in a mall, they're sort of screening your application, you're supposed to somehow be related to retail, and so they can use the empty storefronts right there in the mall as a place to test some of the products that their co-work people are working on. So I, I just thought it was a really, it's a very creative sort of twist on the co-work space, which has become more popular now. And also it just relates to what we're, we're talking about today anyway. So yeah, I thought it was a, it was a good little article and a nice design too. Yeah. The Donna, your endorsement actually um, factors into my endorsement as well, because not only is this particular co-working idea specific to the mall, but it's also specific to San Francisco, right? Like the housing market in San Francisco right? and the uh, ability to find office space in San Francisco is so tight that they're kind of, this has become a, a mode of alternate practices. You go into a mall, right? You rent space in a mall. I wanted to endorse the article that announced the official kind of pivot that the Googleplex expansion that was initially proposed for a huge swath of land in Mountain View that was lost by Google to LinkedIn. Google has since announced that they have, as could be expected, they will still get land. Um, in fact, this land is land they already had. They already possessed this land and they already had the rights to build on it. And so they're just kind of taking their plans for the big and Heatherwick designed glass canopy, super modular robot build thing. And they're instead locating it on a different, slightly smaller tract of land in the same general area. So it's kind of like, I love the story, not because of necessarily like I'm 
not because I'm rah-rah in Google, but I just always, I just think it's kind of a hilarious instance of this company that anytime you think that something might strike against them, they just come back with some type of Trump, <laughs> Trump card that says, oh, in fact, everything will be fine. We're like, don't worry about us. It's a little bit amazing to me. So that was Googleplex expansion pivots big and Heatherwick design onto new site. And I think they've kind of had to scale back the ultra futurism of the glass canopy design a little bit, but it is confirmed that big and Heatherwick will still be on it. Paul, do you have anything to endorse this week? Or Ken? Ken, you, you go can, first. Yeah, you can duke it out. Okay, sweet. Two things. Um, I, one, I just wanted to say one more thing about Donna's thing, uh, co-working uh, endorsement. I am I grow increasingly frustrated that there aren't really a whole lot of co-working spaces for um, for creatives, um, and I'm growing frustrated with that in the Twin Cities. It just seems like it's all these geeky, high-tech companies, and there really is is a need for, for those kinds of uh, spaces for architects and graphic designers, product designers, and just um, creatives who are really would work well together. So if anybody out there has a, a lot of cash and wants to dump it in Minneapolis for those kinds of sites, I'd be happy to join. As for my uh, endorsement, I, I just have to say this is the biggest news in the Twin Cities right now, besides um, the fact that uh, Adrian Peterson has come to training camp. It's the fact that Minneapolis is in the top 20 for bike-friendly cities. And I think it's the first time a city uh, inside the United States has actually made this list. Wow. And we are number 18. So we are the most bike-friendly city, number 18 out of the entire world. So here's to kicking ass Minneapolis. Kick ass, Minneapolis. Yeah, just the prospect of biking in Minneapolis sounds terrifying to me, mostly because of the winters, not because of any <laughs> infrastructural thing. They got those fat tire bikes. They, you know, I, I really commend them. I mean, they, they bike all year round and um, they got those fat tire bikes. So they're chugging up and down the street, up and down hills. They got studded tires. They, you know, they uh, they wear their their hipsterism well. So you you know they're hardcore when you see them in the dead of winter and they've got <laughs> icicles hanging off their face uh, because it's clinging to their beards. Yeah. Um, and some of the women too, but that's another story. You know, we've got the nice ride here and it's, you know, it's here for a short period of time. We've got great greenways and we're increasingly adding um, bike lanes and, and we try to get a cycle track. I think it's a cycle track. I think that's what it's called in our neighborhood here in South Minneapolis, but the residents weren't really too keen on it. So we got some something a bit of a modified one. So when that's done, it'll be really, really, it'll be fantastic actually. I love this list because it wasn't purely just like, where is it most pleasant to bike or which place is like just statically the best place for biking. It really took into account larger systems operating to help bike infrastructure become more helpful in the city and to actually encourage people to bike. So not just accommodate bikers, but actually create more bikers. And so, of course, you have Copenhagen at the top of the list. But the fact that Minneapolis beat out both Hamburg and Montreal, I think that was pretty awesome. Paul, do you have any endorsements this oh, week? Oh, yeah. Well, some of the some of the stories uh, we had already talked about. So I just want to, again, endorse job board because there's a lot of really awesome jobs right now posted. I mean, just among some of the hundreds of new jobs are you know, positions at at big in New York for a senior architect and designer. I mean, hey, you might be working on uh, two World Trade Center. There's jobs at the AIA, lots of jobs at Michael Maltzen in LA, which would be a great place to work. There's a job at Free, Fernando uh, Romero in New York, Rafael Vignoli, SOM, Snowetta, Etsy. There's even an architectural job at Etsy. There's architectural jobs at Ralph Lauren. So there's a lot of jobs out there. So it's a good time to find a, uh, a great new job if you're out of work or if you are sitting at work and mad at the world with what you're working on. <laughs> AIA is even hiring, I saw. Yeah. yeah. The AIA. The AIA. Like 
director of emerging professionals or something like that? Yeah, in D.C. Uh huh. Yeah, I'd be interested in that yeah. one, but I'm not going to move to D.C. <laughs> I just can't. I'm too I'm too committed here. I'm stuck here in the middle. You know, there are a lot of jobs when you have to go to page three. Wait, wait, wait. Just no. to get to you yesterday's to to page jobs. four. Just to get no, just to get to May's job postings, <laughs> end of May. That's Which how is many three jobs days ago, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so you know, a lot of people think that if the job is on like page four, it's too late; it's already taken. That's not the situation right now. It's uh, firms are having a hard time. But anyways, I sound like a broken record talking about this stuff. Uh, well, I think that's it for this week. Uh, Nam. Yeah, I have one question for Nam before we sign off, and it's not about books. So Ken's talking about bicycling in Minneapolis. Have you ever been to somewhere like Minneapolis? Have you ever been to winter? I feel like you you are just a warm weather person. Like yeah. Sunny and- so I'm actually originally a Yankee, born and raised in Brooklyn uh, for the first half of my, or, you know, Ooh. first 10, 12 years of my life and then made it down south and then was in the Midwest. I've spent a lot of time, tra- you know, moving around in my life. But uh, I have been here for about 20 years. So my blood is about as warm blooded as it gets now. That is a real thing. Your yeah. blood does change. I have biked in the winter before, though. I mean, I remember... Remember, you know, even just as, as a younger kid, you know, I mean, if you live in that weather, you know, there were times when I, you know, was playing in the snow in jeans and a t-shirt, you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's just, it becomes second nature, I think, but not anymore. No, um, I have a question. Yeah. Is Florida as fucking crazy as it seems? <laughs> <laughs> so to answer your question, I, I'm sure I actually was a friend of mine who just moved to Florida just told me about this recently. There's either a Twitter or a website called Florida Man. And it just republishes yes. like the, that, like headline of Florida man does X. Does, oh, yeah. Florida has the best news. Yeah, <laughs> and I mean, you know, what I would say is the part of Florida I'm in is is you know kind of it's very unique. It's not at all like what most people think of in terms of Florida, in terms of the beaches or Orlando or Miami. It's you know it's more like the South, but like blue because I'm in a college town. But yeah, as I alluded to earlier, those civic comments, you know, periods we have. Our, our share. The most recent tweet by Florida Man is Florida Man gives himself second degree burns making margaritas. <laughs> I don't even know how that's possible. The next one is Florida Man punches stranger for not letting him pet his dog. Yeah, it's gold. It's absolute gold. Hey, Nam, you forgot to answer one question. Oh, sure. Who are you listening to? Oh, hey. Kind of yeah, yeah. Um, well, what I will have to say is my music world has been thrown upside down in recent weeks because I don't know if you guys have ever used or heard of Groove Shark, but that was my digital, whatever the legalities of Groove Shark may have been, that was my home for digital music for the last, you know, couple of years and they were officially shut down a few weeks ago so I lost a huge library of music that I had you know gotten over the years so I've just joined SoundCloud and you know the only thing is it doesn't really work for rock it's really more of like a DJ electronic kind of mix tape kind of thing what I can answer your question by saying I suppose is I recently, as in like this weekend, picked up two. I have a very extensive record collection that I've built up over about 10, 15 years. I have probably about 400 records. Um, and I recently, this weekend, picked up uh, a 19, it's like from 1979, a Sun Ra album. I think it's Space is the Place, but I can't remember the specific um, title. And then I also picked up an old, you know, again, I think it's, a, I mean, not a first pressing in terms of like mint condition or anything, but it's a pretty, it's something I've been wanting to get for a while. It's a, a, a Fela Kuti with ginger baker uh africa 70 album so those are kind of probably my two most recent additions but yeah nice well Nam, it's been great having you and i hope you can come back and uh join us again anytime i was you know thrilled and and super excited to join you guys 
Well, we look forward to the next time. Bring some bourbon too. (laughs) I I, I can do that. (laughs) All right. Well, thanks everybody for listening. Send your questions, comments, suggestions to us at connect at rconnect.com or via Twitter with hashtag rconnectsessions. And uh, please consider rating us on iTunes. And until next week, thanks for joining us. Bye guys. Bye. 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 Have a good week. Bye. Bye. Bye.